0: No, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, no, I was just, it just made me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to talk about my mother anymore, so um, I haven't brought her with me, no. Um, she's preparing a small group for tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> not really. Anyway, great to be with you. I'm continuing our series in the Apostles' Creed this morning, which I'm really excited about. This series is called We Believe. Do you know what? So much of what we do in life, we come with, I believe this. But this is a moment where we, as the church, talk about the things that we believe in. And it's almost a declaration that when we declare the creed, we're saying, this is the story that we stand for. um, There are so many different narratives. There are so many stories in our culture. But when we talk about the creed the apostles creed and we go through and I'll I'll talk it through in a second if you haven't been here before we're just saying this is this is our storyline this is what we stand on this is the truth that we stand on and so if you haven't been here before just very quickly the apostles creed was written in the 300s and you'd have thought it was written by the apostles but it wasn't actually it was the gathering of their teachings and it was really um a summary of the Christian faith. It's like a summary of what we actually believe. And so I'm just going to read it now so that you can see what I'm talking about. It says this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to give you a little health warning this morning that it's going to be pretty full on the four lines that I'm taking on today should not be done in one sermon, is what I've realized. I want to blame the person who put this sermon series together, and therefore I will be blaming myself today. As uh, so I was like, who can I blame? J- James, you did it. Okay, well, that was silly. But we are going to be looking at Jesus. <laughs> We're going to be looking at these phrase, phrases. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. You ready? You're like, no. Uh, so I'm just going to take each phrase one by one and just work through them. So there's this first phrase that says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, it's really interesting language here that Jesus' suffering is important. If you think about it, it's like this is a summary of the things that are first Order importance. Why is this in here? Why is Jesus's suffering important? What's this got to do with the core of our faith? We live in a world that is suffering and messed up. And, and do you know what? I, don't, I think if you were to go out on the street and ask people that and say, Do you think the world's messed up? a lot of people would be like, Virtually everybody would, be, everybody would say, Yes, I agree with that. The world is a mess. And I think another thing that people would agree on is the fact that we all suffer. So, it's impossible to watch or read the news without realizing that suffering is part of human experience. We will all suffer the loss of loved ones, for instance, during our life. Hugely, hugely difficult when people pass away. Perhaps, you've suffered injustice or pain from an accident or illness, you know, that we go through our life and suddenly when we have a health issue, something that we're carrying, that is really, really hard. That for other people, it could be suffering a broken heart from maybe a divorce or a relational breakup. You know, relationships are incredibly difficult and we will all go through periods and times when it feels very, very difficult. So uh, my point is we will all experience the brokenness of our world and each other. It's not just our world that's broken because we can almost kind of want to put it right out there and say, well, the world's broken. Actually, the reality is we're broken. People are broken. And so suffering is one of the great mysteries that causes Christians and non-Christians alike to call the love of God into question. So the question, and if you've been in discussions with people who that don't have faith, you will often have this. How could God be a loving God and still allow this to happen to me, for instance? And then you can fill in the blank of what that is. Or if it's not even ourselves, it might be somebody else. How could God allow this to happen to somebody that I love might well be the question that we look at. So perhaps the greatest objection to faith in the 21st century is the enormity of suffering in the world that we as the citizens of this world experience. Now the creed says of Jesus Christ, he suffered. Now the suffering of Jesus does not explain our suffering. But it does reveal to us a God who is willing to allow himself to be subjected to and experience all the pain and suffering that this broken world experiences. So in other words, as Christians, we do not worship a God who stands far off. We have a Savior who knows and understands our pain, that he has experienced it. And so when we look at the person of Jesus, we look at Jesus who gave up, you know, in that moment, gave up his divinity to come to earth as a human, to be on this earth and to deal with the absolute mess. He understands what betrayal looks like. Jesus, just before he was going to cr- the cross, every single one of his friends deserted him. So he understands betrayal. If it was to talk about physical pain, well, we look at the cross, don't we? He understood what it is to experience unbelievable pain. Um he understands what disconnection from the Father looks like as well. So on every level, when you look at the person of Jesus, you, could, you could, we can't sit there and just go, God does not understand. When we look at the person of Jesus, we can go, you understand pain. You understand disconnection. You understand betrayal, relational betrayal. You understand. Now, this is one of the most important things for me in my faith. I remember when I was studying theology and looking at all of the all of the different, you know, reasons for God and arguments of God, I think one of the things that I just found most compelling was that our Savior understands. That he understands everything that we go through. That when we look in the eyes of Jesus, we look he looks at us with compassion. He doesn't look at us as, you know, just get over it. He's like he looks at us and he's like, I understand. I understand what it is that you're going through. I understand that your heart is broken. I understand what it feels like. That's what we have in our Saviour. That's what we have in the person of Jesus. Jesus understands our pain. So Christians never need to be ashamed of our faith in light of the world's suffering. We worship a God who, in his love, chose to experience firsthand what it's like to live as a human in a world that has been horribly marred by sin. Now, some of you are here today and you're suffering. Because the reality is during our life, each one of us will go through periods of suffering. So by definition, there will be people in this room today that are going through an incredibly hard time. What I would love to say is that he understands. That's why this is so important. He understands. He looks at us with compassion. The image of Jesus that we see taking the sin of the world on his shoulders. That's the image of him on the cross isn't it? as nails were put into his hands, that he took the pain of the world, the sin, the mess, and he put it on his shoulders and he said, oh, I will take that. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So we're talking, we're talking, you know, when you think about justice, he had done nothing wrong. He was perfect. And yet he took the burden of our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's what it goes on to say. Not only he suffered, but he suffered under Pontius Pilate. The single uncontested fact about Jesus was that he was crucified in Jerusalem sometime around AD 30. He was executed at the words of the Jerusalem high priest on the order of Pontius Pilate. That Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried is probably the only line of the Apostles' Creed that even atheists can confess with a clear conscience. So the rest of this, they'll be like, I believe in God the Father. They'll be like, nope. Uh, You know, that he was dead, crucified, dead, and buried. I think everybody could agree. Yes, that's true. The problem is that we can all too easily mouth the words, was crucified, without reflecting on them and really understanding what they mean. We can forget the horror that these words would have held for people of the time. We can become so accustomed to the language of the cross, can't we? As a society, it becomes quite commonplace. It just becomes an everyday piece of life. I've seen it, whether it's fashion, jewellery, religious symbol, you know, all of these things. But the truth is, the picture of the crucifixion is not like the iconic M of McDonald's or the Apple logo that we look at. It's not the same. We are not talking about religious branding. We're talking about the most horrendous form of torture we can imagine. And this distinctive symbol tells us what God is like, there is no length that he will not go to to have a relationship with us. That's how much he loves us. So when Jesus was there with his arms on the cross outstretched, what was he saying? He was saying, this is how much I love you. This is how far I will go for you. I will go this far. And it reminds me of a little children's story that some of you might have read um, and uh, when I was preparing it, it, just came to mind. And so I looked through my bookshelf, and it's the story of Guess How Much I Love You. I don't know if there are any of you who have read this or are familiar with this. Guess How Much I Love You. And it's this beautiful story of little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair. And he, little nut brown hair is going to bed one night and he held on tight to Big Nut Brown Hair's very long ears, and he wanted to be sure that Big Nut Brown Hair was listening. Guess how much I love you," he said. "Oh, I don't think I could guess that," said Big Nut Brown Hair. "This much," said Little Nut Brown Hair, and so he stretched out his arms as wide as they could go. And so, what we have in this story is we've got this brilliant two and fro, 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 fro going on between this little nut brown hair and this big nut brown hair. And every time the little hair says, this is how much I love you. I love you this much. I love you this much. I love you all the way to that tree and back. And every time big nut, how, Nick, I can't say his name. Brig, <laughs> big, knit brown hair. We've had knits in the Rankin house, so I'm clean. Like, just wanted to tell you, but um, we did. Jen wasn't so clean. She, um she's now clean. Um, Oh, that's another story for another time. <laughs> I'm sure I was telling something really profound, and I got lost. And so it just goes back and forth. And and then I love the end of the story. Um, Little Nut Brown Hair looks beyond the thorn, pushes out into the big dark night. Nothing can be further than the sky. I love you right up to the moon, he said, and he closed his eyes. Oh, that's very far, said Big Nut Brown Hair. That is very, very far. And Brig Nut Brown hair settled little nut brown hair into his bed and he leaned over and he kissed him good night. And then he lay down close by and whistled, whispered with a smile, I love you, right up to the moon and back. And it's just this to and fro of just saying how much I love you. And the image I when I talked about the father, I gave this image of the father's embrace this picture of the Father embracing the Son and just kissing his head time and time again. The image that I want to give you today as we're leaving is I want to give you the image of Jesus' arms outstretched on the cross and in it he's saying, this is how much I love you. This is how far I would go for you. And that's why this is so important. I feel like I've finished the talk there, but I haven't actually. I've got more to go. Um... As we're looking at the cross in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, Paul says the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. So for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul said it was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Now many before us and many after us have and will struggle to come to terms with the cross as a sacrifice for humanity's sin and the ordained means by which divine anger is settled. Some of us really struggle with, what is it that's actually going on in the cross? I've had countless discussions with people, as many of you will have over time. But for many, the story of the cross is shameful and it offends them. And they think it's absur- absurd and some even ridiculous. But whenever the cross is discussed, there will always be mocking voices who hurl insults at it. And yet none of the sneers and taunts can change the fact that the cross is a beacon of light in our world, that the cross stands for hope, that the cross stands for joy, peace, love, all of these things. This is what's going on in the cross. It is the ultimate act of love. When you read Luke's gospel, The cross isn't the end result of a series of unfortunate events. It wasn't, you know, you read the gospel and it's like, oh, and then Jesus just happened to stumble into this situation and then this situation and then, oh, he ended up having to go to the cross. But it's part of the divine plan. Read the book of John and Jesus' death is a revelation of divine glory and motivated by divine love. In Corinthians, Paul said the message of Christ crucified is the very power of God. Paul goes on to say in Galatians that even his uh, own identity is somewhat mysteriously connected to the death of Jesus to the point that he would say, I have been crucified with Christ. This is what it says in Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is the picture of what happens in baptism. I talked about baptism earlier, but we get baptized into his death. And then we get raised again into new life. That's what's happening in baptism. We come up again. And why they say we have new life. That's the picture that's going on. I have been crucified in his death. And now I have new life. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Hebrews 12 goes on to say, Remember Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. These are some of the most remarkable verses. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross. Can you you even get your head around what it's talking about here? That word joy is hard to miss, and it would have struck Romans and Greeks and Jews as unbelievable to associate crucifixion with any kind of joy. We cannot talk as if Jesus was just this heavenly figure who just decided to float down from heaven at some random point in history, borrowed a human body, taught a few earthly stories with heavenly meanings, promised everlasting life to anyone who would accept his claims and then irritated the religious leaders of the day for the sole purpose of getting them to crucify him so he could pay a sin debt that humanity owed an angry and unforgiving God in heaven. That's not what's going on. Jesus was not crucified because he was in the wrong place, Jerusalem, at the wrong time, Passover, doing the wrong thing, causing a commotion, which upset the wrong people, the high priest, during the watch of the wrong governor, Pontius Pilate. What I'm saying is this was not some just massive mistake that went on. Rather, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And I just want to give you this picture of what happened in Gethsemane. Just the most amazing. This is the, guard, this is the moment before Jesus went to the cross. He was in the garden. And in the garden, we see Jesus wrestling with what is about to occur. It's not this moment of, yes, I really want to go to the cross. What we see in this moment in Gethsemane is Jesus wrestling, going, do I really have to do this? Is there no other way? I'm just going to read a bit of it. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. So, Disciples sit there. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is where we see his humanity coming out. It's like, oh, I am overwhelmed. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is so difficult for me, he's saying. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Please take this away. There is, I don't, I don't want to do this. I want to do this yet yeah, not as I will but as you will there's a moment of surrender coming in here then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping so in the midst of this wrestle that's going in and the dark night of the soul his disciples fall asleep I think he could have been a little angry couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour he asked Peter Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time. So this is a continual thing. It's not just once. He goes back again. My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Again, surrender moment. Is there any other way? No, I will do it if I have to do it. When he came back again, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Then he turned to, returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I, I wanted to read this passage because it gives you just an insight into what it cost Jesus. Do I have to do this? Is there another way? Now, seeing the depth of this moment, I don't know what it does for you, but it leads me to a place of incredible gratitude. Because it's in this moment, I take it out of just being this religious symbol, and I take it, and suddenly it means something to me, and I can sit there and go, oh, you did this for me. It becomes personal. Now, just to say it's not getting any lighter in this next phrase. He descended to hell. Sorry, it's, I, I did. I did give you a health warning at the beginning that this was a pretty full-on talk. But actually the gospel's pretty full-on, isn't it? <laughs> you know, what Jesus did is pretty full-on. It's, it's amazing. What does it mean he descended to hell? What does that mean? You know, there are objections thrown in the face of any Christian who wants to engage with other people about the Christian faith. I mentioned one of them earlier. How can be God be loving if I'm suffering? Probably the number one objection. What is truth might be the second objection. I did a whole series on truth at the beginning of the year, looking, you know, in the, in the culture that we live in, what, what do you even mean by truth? Can we, can we say anything's true? Is it your truth, my truth? Is the truth. So that's the second thing. So the third one would be, he descended into hell deals squarely with the third great objection of the faith, the experience of the absence of God. Now, this is probably the most controversial and confusing line in the Creed, and it dates back to the fourth century. But this idea of Jesus descending to hell goes back earlier still to the ancient church. It was affirmed by virtually all of the second and third century fathers. Now, these are some of their names. they got great names. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria. These were some of the big dudes back then, Athanasius in the fourth century. And probably the greatest of the church fathers, Augustine in the fifth century, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, taught it. So did John Calvin. What does it mean? Some people say that he descended into hell is actually really mistranslated. That would be how they come at it. They suggest that it really means he descended into the grave. He descended into what the Old Testament called Sheol. It simply means that Jesus died. That's what some people would say. But that would be, as John Calvin said, a useless repetition. The creed uses an economy of words. I've talked about that before. There's not much in the creed. It's very short. It doesn't say the same thing twice. It's already said, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. To say it again, that he went to the grave, would just be saying the same thing the creed's already said, in my mind. Some people say that Jesus descended to Sheol to preach to the dead or that he literally went to hell to proclaim his victory over Satan, or to give those in hell a second chance. Those would be some of the different viewpoints. There are some scriptures that are pretty ambiguous that may point in these directions. The view that I, along with Rich Nathan, Rich Nathan is a guy that leads the largest vineyard church in the States, um, and is a theologian, and I, I really respect him find most convincing is the view of a guy called jo- John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer. Calvin said that this part of the creed constituted the last phase of Christ's humiliation, the humbling of God and suffering. What it's really saying, I started suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is say- saying, there is no depth of human suffering of which our Lord was not acquainted. So to say that he descended into hell means that Christ identified with everything we go through, including experiencing the loss of God, the utter absence of God. Jesus Christ experienced what many of us experience, seasons of life where God seems utterly absent. Put it another way, this is how we should look at it. What happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? So on Good Friday, Jesus dies on Easter Sunday, he rises again. So the question is, where was Jesus between the point that he died on Good Friday and the point that he rose again on Easter Sunday? That's really what we're talking about in this moment. Now, Holy Saturday is something that you might not be that familiar with, but it's where we consider the absence of God. On Good Friday, we remember Jesus' crucifixion. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection. And between them lies Holy Saturday. Where is God? He's dead, he's buried, he's absent. I don't know whether you've ever had an experience where it seemed like God was absent from your life and from your world and silent in the face of your prayers. I don't know whether you've ever had that we we sometimes feel that maybe god doesn't exist maybe he doesn't answer prayer maybe he doesn't love us in those moments what good friday and holy saturday bring home to us is how unreliable our experience and our feelings are as a guide to the presence of god and there's this image that i that i think really helps to explain this if you are standing near the cross on good friday so you're you're part of the crowd and you're watching The cross. You're one of Jesus' disciples and you see what's happening. Jesus is being crucified. You see the Messiah hanging bloody and dying. You hear the jeers of the crowd. You may have thought, surely, if there is a place on earth where God is not working, it's right here at the cross. You would have looked at this moment and gone, where is God? Surely God couldn't be here at the cross. If you were there on Holy Saturday, you would say, surely God is doing nothing here. He's absent. What you wouldn't know, but which history later revealed, is that after Friday and after Saturday comes Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. And we might be tempted to say the same thing. God couldn't be in all of this mess, in all of this horror. He must be absent from this scene. On Holy Saturday, it's totally silent. God couldn't be working here. Everything's lost. There can't be anything that would resolve this problem. Have you ever experienced a Holy Saturday in your life where you're like, in the midst of this situation, in the midst of this circumstance, where are you, God? I cannot see what is going on. I'm, God, I cannot see you in the picture. My point is, God is not absent from your life, even though it sometimes feels that way. There will be times of your life in the midst of great difficulty and trial and suffering where it feels like God is absent. If you looked at the cross, you would look at the cross and say, God is utterly absent. He was not utterly absent at all. God is not silent, even though sometimes you can't hear hear his voice. He is at work in your life and the world, just as he was at work on the cross and on Holy Saturday. God knew where all of this was heading. And then we finish with this phrase, and on the third day he rose again. Now, I think this is the greatest understatement in the history of understatements. So you've kind of gone through this moment, and I'm not sure whether I should really say this against the creed, but I'm going to. We've gone through crucified, dead, and buried. If I was writing that, I think I'd have just been a bit more, I put maybe a couple of adjectives in there. Like... On the third day, he rose victorious. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? It's like, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. It's like, come on. So I'm not genuinely thinking of tweaking the creed, but just a little bit. Um, This could be my last Sunday. Anyway, it's been great. (laughs) I've had a really wonderful time with you all, but this could be my time to go. Um, But can you see what I mean? On the third day, he rose again. This, this is the glorious moment that we've been building to. The ultimate picture of victory. When I think about the resurrection, what is going on in the resurrection? Well, there's a, there's a whole sermon for another time because I've got five minutes. But I, when I think about the resurrection, I think about the word victory. I just simplify it. It's the, what happened in the resurrection? Victory. Two major things that are going on. Jesus' death, oh sorry, Jesus isn't not death. Jesus' victory over Satan on the one side. What happened? He He's triumphant on the cross. He, he defeated Satan. Satan was defeated. That's what's going on on one side. And then on the other side is that he defeated death. He had victory over death. So you've got these two things going on, victory. That's the picture that we get from the resurrection. I've had this song going round my mind the last couple of weeks, and so some of you will know this song, and others you will you'll be like, old school, shows my age. Up from the grave he arose. Some of you are like, I want to sing. With a mighty triumph, uh, his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. So that means where he went, he went down. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. Then in the next bit of the Creed, it talks about he ascended to heaven. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. That is a great description of what's going on here. With a mighty triumph over his foe's victory, death was defeated. When we come... And I'm going to take this on at another time because I actually cut 1,500 words out of this talk, just, just so you know. Because I, I still, when I started this, I was like, I really want to tell you what, when, why the cross is so important and, you know, why it mattered. And I was like, do you know what, I'm going to have to take this on another time because you can't do all things in, in one moment. But what I want to do is I just want to read to you some of the names of Jesus. And in this moment, 50 different names of Jesus to prove to you all of the different things that Jesus is. Do you know what I mean? That Jesus won. So that you can just get a feel of some of these titles help to say what was going on with Jesus. So I'm just going to read them out. They're in alphabetical order, which some of you will love. Almighty One, Alpha and Omega, Advocate, Author and Perfector of our Faith, Authority, Bread of Life, Beloved Son of God, Bridegroom, Chief Cornerstone, Deliverer, Faithful and true, good shepherd, great high priest, head of the church, holy servant, I am, Emmanuel, indescribable gift, judge, king of kings, lamb of God, light of the world, lion of the tribe of Judah. We sang about that earlier. Lord of all, mediator, Messiah, mighty one, one who sets free our hope, peace, prophet. Redeemer, risen, rock, sacrifice for us, Savior, Son of Man, Son of the Most High, Supreme Creator over all, resurrection and the life, the door, the way, the word, true vine, truth, victorious, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is an overwhelming... So when you're trying to describe the resurrection, I'm like, look at the titles of Jesus. These are some of the things that are going on in the resurrection. This is just 50 names to get us started, thinking about how immense Jesus is. The resurrection is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, a salvation that renews and forgives. The resurrection at its heart is for everyone. Every single person. That is what gets me out of bed. It's like, this is for everybody. I want to finish with this. I'm going to miss a few pages because you might not cope. There's this picture at the end of the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. I don't know if you remember the bit near the end, and it's called The Resurrection of Aslan. It's a beautiful moment. And after his cruel execution by the wicked white witch the two girls later hear a large cracking noise and they turn and see that the stone table has broken into so aslan the lion has been killed on this stone table and the body of aslan is gone it's then that they see the resurrected aslan emerge and i rewatched this bit of the film last week it's pretty awesome if you want to if you want something just to get you going The girls are excited but naturally confused. So Aslan explains, and he says this, you know, they're like, why are you alive? What's happened? Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she had have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would know that when a willing victim who'd committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. I want to leave you with that image that I said earlier. When we think about the cross and the resurrection and all that Jesus accomplished, I want to leave you with that picture of Jesus with his arms out, nail, you know, his hands have been nailed into the wood. And it's a picture that says, this is how much I love you. This is how far I would go for you. There is no length that I would not go to to win you back. And that's what's going on in this passage, and that's what we're talking about today. So why don't we stand?